0: tony and josh from ggch of course trip fuller and Homebrewed christianity and a whole grip of others and you can use the promo code return of yhp all one word for 25 dollars off your ticket prices go up starting june 1st that link will be in the notes i hope to see a bunch of you guys there in october it was a serious highlight of last year for me Mike Austin and Greg Bach, thank you guys for being here. I am really excited to have this conversation with you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks for having us.
0: So you guys are the editors of a new book called QAnon, Chaos and the Cross. It's a collection of essays around essentially Christianity, but in particular evangelical Christianity and conspiracy theories, including, of course, QAnon. But also the big lie, election fraud, vaccine conspiracy theories, mask conspiracy theories, etc. So we know that in the real world, there are conspiracies, right? It is a it is a law you can break and be convicted of criminal conspiracy. Right. So obviously conspiracies exist, sometimes powerful people or individuals within an organization or maybe sometimes even multiple organizations will conspire away from the public good toward their own end, and they can sometimes get caught and sometimes not get caught. But those are not conspiracy theories. We might sort of start by thinking, well, a conspiracy theory is just one that hasn't been proven in the court of law yet and get ourselves off the hook. And yet we also have this sense that like, yeah, but there are some kind of batshit shit conspiracy. There's obviously a continuum here. There's some sort of a scale. How do you guys distinguish between a real conspiracy or a potentially real conspiracy that there might be some weight to that versus uh, a bonafide conspiracy theory?
1: One way, uh, which is not going to be surprising from philosophers, it has to do with evidence. Uh, And I think especially publicly available evidence that can be confirmed or not. Right. So you take QAnon is, in that sense, it's an easy target because there's so many things, predictions that haven't come true, um, and now it's such an unwieldy mess that there are mutually inconsistent claims, right? So they can't all be true. So that's one linchpin for us is that sort of publicly available evidence, you can confirm or not. So, you know, like Watergate, we've got it. Vaccine mandates, the big lie, I would argue but we don't. Um, and of course, our book's not really focused on particular things as much as conspiracies, more general how to deal with it. But yeah, I think that's a vital question.
0: It also seems like there are gradations sometimes within what might seem like a, a, an individual conspiracy theory, like nine 11 true thing. There's sort of a continuum all the way from the U S government planned this <laughs> to like a much softer version, which is, it can kind of be grouped in, but I don't know that it's a conspiracy theory, which is something like, There was some really bad management within the Bush administration and there might've been a handful of people for whom continuing to manage poorly was in their best interest or something like that. And so there's like bad actors, I suppose, but not like a a massive sort of multi-agency conspiracy, but that might even get grouped in if someone's just like, I don't know, the official story seems too glossy. They're not really admitting enough fault or, you know, something like that, or like the deep state, which I know what the kind of QAnon version of deep state is, which is like there are, I don't know, thousands of government employees all acting in concert to undermine certain presidents and not other presidents, you know, namely Trump. But then there's like, what what do people mean when they say deep state? Like if you're if you are polling people or something, someone might mean or think that you mean in a, in a survey question by deep state. There are some people at the FBI, CIA and in the military that don't like Donald Trump and would like to see him fail. Well, that's surely true. How concerted and connected are their efforts? There's a kind of an unfortunate fungibility and squishiness sometimes around these terms.
2: Right. Defining conspiracy theory is difficult to do for the definition I would give is an explanation of some event in terms of some small group working in secret. And yet, even in our book, we've got different contributors with different definitions. Yeah. And some of them would, would even consider elements of Christianity to be a conspiracy theory because you've got the Trinity, which is a small group acting in secret uh, in some way. But uh, I would add to that also. Uh... <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, okay. It's but It's a bit
2: strange. We, we don't, I don't hold to that definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, if
0: the, and if that's true, then that means that the Trinity is real and that essentially Christianity is true. So that's just kind of weird. Anyway, go ahead.
2: Right. So I would add to that definition, the intentions of that small group are nefarious, like there's some evil plan. So that would rule out like lone actors in some administration, you know, screwing things up.
0: Yeah. To be clear, I'm not a 9-11 truther. Like I do believe that a plane hit the Pentagon and, you know, I don't believe that building seven or whatever was a controlled demolition. It is possible that there was some group of three to six intelligence people who thought this is good for America and this is good for our careers. And we're going to let this slide. That would be like a small conspiracy within a larger group of agencies that are constantly trying to prevent terrorism attacks. Right. And that would be a way of thinking, Oh, okay. There might be a small C conspiracy within the tens of thousands of employees across these different agencies. It's not the big capital C conspiracy theory.
2: But I think that's really key. I think it's important to recognize the complexity. That's that's what's really helpful here. A lot of people who aren't experienced with this area or don't have friends or loved ones who believe these things just dismiss conspiracy theories in total. Right. Just don't even consider them. It's just so complicated. It's not just simple. once you start digging in, like you're saying, there are ones that are we all agree on, like Watergate. But there are ones that aren't as obvious. There are ones that sound crazy, like lizard people. But there are ones that you're like, hmm, I don't know. The JFK assassination could be. Who knows?
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of the classic one where it's like it, it could be that that's the official story. It could have been maybe the mafia could have been some people with, you know, who know? We don't really know. It's not on its face ridiculous that a president who made a lot of enemies with very powerful people that some of them may have contributed in some way to his death. It is a lot crazier to say that every image of the moon or from space <laughs> is manufactured by a cabal of NASA liars, right like those and, and we're, we're already kind of talking about like evidence and sort of the volume of the claim is kind of how I think about it sort of. In that sense.
1: Yeah, it's a polarized way of thinking about it, right? So, someone who's maybe knee deep or further into some of these things might say, well, look, you guys just trust the government, you trust all the institutions, you're not critical thinking, you know. And so, yeah, you want to avoid just a blind faith, right? That's the other extreme. I'm just, well, of course, our government wouldn't do anything like that. Yeah. So, kind of a healthy skepticism, right? But I think the important part of all that is something you said is we just don't know. And I, in a lot of these cases. And I think that's important because we don't want to just say, well, I don't know. We want to say yes or no mm-hmm. and, may, and kind of dig in. And that's one thing I think, and we'll come back to that, I think, as we talk even about practical things. But for me, that kind of intellectual humility is what's sorely missing. And we just have to start being more willing to say, "And yeah, I'm just not sure. I don't have a view here. I'm kind of suspending judgment until I get more evidence.
0: Philosophers always, always muddying the waters of certainty and, and <laughs> simple, simple claims. Uh, you guys mentioned, you know, in the intro that Christianity and conspiracy theories have had a long, complicated relationship. When some of us have realized what like our family or members of our church have believed during, especially during after Trump and then maybe accelerated during covid right? The Facebook posts or the email forwards or the conversation in person. I think for a lot of us, it puts the whole Christian project into question. Like, hold on. If these people believe this, then why did they believe the stuff that I kind of still believe or some of it or whatever? And, and is, are we all just gullible? Like I remember thinking around Trump, I've kind of come to modify this a bit, but the gullibility was the thing that irked me the most that kind of pained me the most of like, do I, cause, cause am I gullible? Do I come from that stock and that world? I wonder if you guys have any thoughts about kind of that organic turn that we make.
2: Well, at least for me, that was one of the motivations behind putting together this volume is a deep concern about what believing conspiracy theories does to the gospel. And so putting the gospel first front and center It's a concern. It's a worry for just the reasons that you described. And so, yeah, when we have friends, we have people in the church who are believing these things, it causes dissonance. Here's the here's the psychological term for you. Psychological dissonance, right? That here I am, I think Christianity is true. I identify as an evangelical Christian. And yet people next to me in the pews believe these things. You know, that's that's really hard. And so putting the book together wasn't like here's all the solutions. We did want it to be a toolkit to help people navigate these waters. But we want to be able to hand it to people and say, like people, leaders in the church who are dealing with this in the pews, people who have loved ones who are being drawn down uh, these paths, you know, to be able to research this for themselves. This isn't a book that you probably hand to a conspiracy theorist and say, hey, just read this and you'll be fine. I doubt yeah. they'll read it. But it is, a, it is meant to be a help to those of us who are working through it for ourselves.
0: So let's start with some of these explanations, right? Some of these descriptions of what's going on here. Let's talk about the search for meaning. First of all, what do you guys mean by humans are on a constant search for meaning? This, this kind of basic tenet of, of existential philosophy, psychology, and, and many other fields.
1: Yeah. It's hard to like, just not say what, and sort of total in a tautology, but yes, meaning purpose, like my little story makes sense in the larger story, right? What I do matters. It's not just random chaos and kind of atoms colliding and then I, I die and rot in the ground, but things I do are worthwhile. Um, what, you know, my relationships, my work. And yeah, and I think there's, you know, psychological and other kind of evidence that we look for that, even in places where like we, we tend to jump too quickly to, you know, everything has a meaning or everything happens for a reason, that kind of thing. I think maybe especially now, if some people are right, where. There's more public failure of institutions, more doubt about them, more fear about all the different kind of demographical changes in the United States and even around the world. So those all these things come together. And it's like things that made people feel secure, um, know who they are, how they fit, what, the, what their country was, you know at least in their minds. A lot of those things are challenged these days in just a variety of ways. And so one natural response is, why is it like this? And this is a way to explain a lot of these things that maybe somebody doesn't like about the way that their world is going. And then there's like a security there. Like, Oh, I've got the real story, right? I'm in the know, here's, what's really going on. You know, the other people are blind to it, but I see what's really going on and I can do something about it or just know about it and tell people about it on Facebook. But yeah.
2: Yeah. It gives people a sense of significance, right? This is what chapter five is about conspiracy theories and the meaning of life. And so it gives people a sense of significance to be in the know to have the answer. And this is part of the appeal of religion, too, right? I think we all admit that being a part of, uh, of a religious faith is that we've discovered something or it, it has discovered us, right? And that gives us a sense of significance. It's just that this is wrong. I mean, these conspiracy theories are false. So it's the concern that we have in the church of putting the emphasis on truth, but also avoiding falsehood. And I think that's what the church has to be better about. Speaking, Dan to your last question.
0: That phrase, I've got the real story, that's one that I struggle with. Like, for instance, when I hear secular, trusted even, wise people talking about the human experience, I recognize the language from my childhood. People going, yeah, you know, no one really knows some of the answers to these biggest questions and people are doing their best to make sense of things. And we are, you know, like we're we're trying and, and I now I think, yep, that's true. <laughs> that's true for my clients. It's true for me. It's true for my family. But back then, I didn't fucking think that. I thought, ah, if they just understood that really, like, they need to be washed in the blood of the lamb and the Holy Spirit will give them the keys to understanding, you know, MXPX lyric, you've already found a book with all the answers to all your questions. 14-year-old me just tattooing that lyric on my forehead metaphorically. And now I think, no, that's not true. Uh, I think we have a book with a lot of incredibly good questions and many answers to them that we can wrestle with. I think Christianity is a full toolkit for living out a good meaningful life. And that's how I do it. But I've got the real story, quote unquote. For me, I have felt like that has to go. That's cancerous, or at at least it's just false. Uh, And so I can't rely on it. I think that's one of those really big lines back to what does the conspiracy stuff say about the larger project
1: yeah it's um, honestly a struggle for me because i would i'm still like a i guess realist about christianity so like you know even at the beginning i think the trinity is real i think jesus rose from the dead but i can say i have within some of those parameters i've got some of those same questions i'm just trying to make sense of it how you know like a lot of those questions and i've I have a lot more beliefs now than I did when I was, say, 30, but I have a lot fewer convictions. But the ones I have are a lot deeper, right? Mm-hmm. So things about, like, I, like God is love. I can't imagine giving that up unless I just gave up theism in general, right? right. I mean, I can't imagine a, a being worth worship thing where that's not true. Like, for someone who's a realist like me who wants to maintain both moral and intellectual humility, it's just a constant check. And also just knowing... Just, I'm a fallibilist. I could be wrong, right? I don't have absolute certainty that I'm right. I mean, I'm living my life as if I am, and I think it's true, but I believe it's true in some sense, I think I might even know it's true, well that's much more contentious but yeah <laughs> but but man, I mean it's hard that's why I mean that's why we're still asking these questions, you know because um, they're hard questions they can't just there's no there's no like algorithm to run
0: well, and I think that i I still do it. Right. Like as I'm listening to you and thinking about what I do now, for instance, like as we are recording this, Trump, the the federal indictment or the, the Florida South Florida indictment came out. Right. And so you have all this conservative media rallying around him and they say things like this is the Biden DOJ coming for Trump and they'll come for you. I read that and I go, actually, guys, I've got the real story. And the real story is. These are sycophants who have – I'm saying the politicians especially, but also some of the media pundits. A few of them might be stupid enough to believe it, but most of them I assume are not stupid and that they know that this is what they have to say to keep their platform, to keep their power and their influence, to keep their positions if they are elected officials, right? Or just to stay in the good graces of uh, Premier Trump until he's no longer at the head of the party, and it's cowardly, it's, it's deceptive. And I think that that's the real story. And so some part of this psychological thing I'm talking about of like, okay, you guys see it that way, but, but I, I think I've got the real story. That is obviously not escapable. We always think that what we think is right. So what I'm trying to do in real time here is distinguish that sort of like, I have a view of how things work And there, and I think that that is by default, the truth. Otherwise I wouldn't believe it. That's obviously fine and not pathological or anything, but then there's another one of like, it's more about secret knowledge. So I don't have that view because it's been revealed to me or a prophet I follow on YouTube or my pastor, or I think it's in the Bible somewhere or, or someone's interpretation of the Bible that I believe. I think I believe it because of psychological evidence, political science evidence, whatever. But I'm also I'm aware of the slipperiness of this. That uh, I I think of myself in a favorable light, and my reasoning capacity is in a favorable light. You know, all, all down the line, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think there's there's a disconnect there between believing something's true and being humble about it, right? And this is something that we all grew up with in the church, and I think the church did a poor job. And teaching the intellectual virtues, maybe ethics in general. That's the distinction I make: is that you can still have strong convictions like the ones you're talking about, Dan, and be humble about it, be tentative about it, not bulldoze people with it. Sometimes when you get into talks with people, whether they're on the other end of the political spectrum or they're conspiracy theorists, you feel like they're coming at you with a battering ram. Right? That's pride. That's arrogance. How can we hold these convictions? Um, I mean, to be to call yourself a Christian, I think we we hold some convictions, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't call ourselves Christian. But we can be intellectually virtuous Christians. We can be humble Christians.
1: But it's difficult because there's just that that human thing. Well, going back, well, I'm right. You know, these people are all wrong. They're all deceived. I mean, it's just so easy to fall into the that prideful, arrogant, egotistical kind of thinking. If you're morbidly li- The introspective, like me, you do that too much. Um, If you're not, then maybe you should do it some more. Uh, But look, it's a harder question. I mean, whether or not there's a God and if there's a Trinity, that's kind of a harder question than the examples from politics, right? That you were given, Dan. I mean, in terms of, you know, so there's something to it. Like, there's something more to saying, I believe this is, you know, capital T true that Jesus rose from the dead was the Son of God. That's a little less than, that's a larger scope than, you know, questions about Trump or the DOJ or things like that.
0: Yeah, because we can talk about evidence. And, you know, when it comes to these public figures, I mean, you could I could probably off the top of my head name five individuals for which we could go back to their public statements about Trump before it was obvious that everybody loved him and how they flip flopped on that. You know, it's like that's not that hard to prove, right, that this person is following public whimsy, not following their own principles. You get 50 of those people and you can recognize a pattern. So you can come to evidence for it. And so I I think evidence is still a good sort of barometer there for judging between a regular belief and a a conspiracy theory or something like that. Mm. What about cognitive closure? This is something that sometimes comes up usually with a, if barely concealed hint of, of progressive liberal, I don't know. Gloss on it and, and pride that conservatives are higher in need for cognitive closure and therefore more susceptible to conspiracy theories. I actually think that's probably true from the evidence, but I don't like the way that it's said. And I've definitely seen cognitive closure or need for closure in related to belief in conspiracy theories it's a little bit like what you were saying earlier around you know a small my little story fits into this larger story it sort of gives me guardrails and language for understanding the world anything about cognitive closure come up in in your guys's research or any of the the essays
1: i just saw this today from the journal of the scientific study of religion came out recently a study that biblical literalism and christian nationalism both independently predict conspiratorial thinking Right. So the kind of thinking that leads one to believe a conspiracy theory. So that's actually something that came up. And maybe maybe the cognitive closure thing, I would say it relates to those two other kind of things as well. Right. The sort
0: of strict biblical literalists, as we think, more fundamentalists. Right. But then the Christian nationalism, it muddies the water like th- this is where it's this is where it's difficult. And this is why I don't like when people get on their high horse who all happen to be personality progressives like myself, right? A little convenient there, but why would Christian nationalism predict the same thing that biblical literally, like it, at least it's not a psychological thing at that point. It is a sociopolitical, a cultural thing, maybe like that seems to me to be more evidence that the sociopolitical identity is driving the train and everything else is coming behind it. And so that that's where it's obviously these things are extremely complex, but we do have to have intellectual humility about this kind of stuff because we don't really know what's doing the prime causal work for some,
1: look, I mean, I, I've got my armchair theories, but it's why in particular, and this isn't addressed in the book a lot, why in particular did evangelical Christians in some ways in America seem more prone to this kind of thing? Um So there is something, why are all these things showing up there? I mean, I guess that's, and that's a question I have to admit. I don't know. I don't know the answer to, and I can come up with some cultural forces and similar things like that. But someone says, why is it like, I don't know, ask a psychologist. Hey, look who we got one.
0: Can I can throw one at you? Not a psychologist (laughs) yet. Give me a couple of years, but I'll throw one at you and I'll see what you think. I obviously, I talk a lot about plausibility structures on this show, so I don't probably need to go into that very much. And then you add in the parallel institutions that that group of Christians made. Christian books, Christian movies, Christian publications, obviously book publishers that had already been going on. But now you've got kids magazines and now you've got, you know, you can live your entire life in an evangelical. um, I mean, bubble is too small of a world of a word. It's really it's its own world. You can if you can fit a whole human life in it, It's bigger than a fucking bubble, you know, and you go to Christian camp at summer and Christian school during the year and you're at church twice a week. And I think that must have some relationship here, because if you are raised on a diet of what is essentially alternative news and alternative media at its best, it's real journalism with an additional editorial lens of, quote, a Christian worldview, we all could guess what percentage of Christian journalism is that good. And then from there, it's, of course, a slide down into pure editorialism or, frankly, whatever anybody wants to say who can raise money because there aren't there's no bishops to check this. These parallel institutions are capitalist enterprises. Uh, You know, there's really no ecclesial authority. And so that is the kind of psychological training that evangelical Christianity in America gets Because here we were a big enough percentage of the population had enough consumers that we could create that whole world that we could live inside. And so that would distinguish us from other countries like the UK or whatever, where you just couldn't believe the same things because most of your neighbors don't agree with you. And you can't you can't just live in this larger than a bubble, what it was sphere, whatever we want to call it, biosphere thoughts on that theory.
2: Well, I think that's good. I think also a difference between us and the UK, from what I've heard, never having been there, but people who, Christians who come from there say they don't have in the UK the same marriage between Christianity and right-wing politics as we do here. And so I think that's part of the explanation, is that over the last few decades at least, there has been this coalescing of conservative politics and evangelical Christianity. So when we do talk to our brothers and sisters who are not in conservative circles? They're just scratching their heads, going, "What is going on over there?" Right? How did you all come to vote that way, or why do you think it was all rigged? And and you know, the two of us are scratching our heads too. We're trying to figure that out.
0: I found a quote from a journal article, but this is from 2013 from Frank's Bangertor and Bauer, and it was there was a series of of articles about I think Christianity, religion, and conspiracy theories, or Christianity and conspiracy theories. I can't remember what the topic was. But here's a quote from their abstract. They say, quote, conspiracy theories are quasi-religious representations in that their contents, forms, and functions parallel those found in beliefs of institutionalized religions. However, conspiracy theories are quasi-religious in that they and the communities that support them lack many of the institutional features of organized religions, end quote. I thought this might be cool to get your thoughts on because it it does seem to kind of intersect with the book and the idea that people have written a lot about QAnon as like basically like the newest American religion, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. It gives you all this meaning, this structure for where your life fits in with a bigger story, et cetera, et cetera. But as I was just saying with the parallel institutions, it lacks any of the sort of institutional structures, any, there's nobody at the top. No one can even agree on who the guy supposedly is. That's giving the information. So it's super internet era and very vague, you know, and all that stuff. And so it then can morph and almost like genetically mutate. Uh, you could think of it that way, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about um, that idea of it being quasi religious.
2: I would agree. I I think I don't know how helpful it is to do the analogy between religion and other things. I mean, in my world religions classes, we talk about this all the time the definition of religion. And depending on your definition, I mean, NFL football would count. So things, all kinds of other things can be religious. So it's not, I'm not sure how helpful that is. But certainly when you look at conspiracy theorists and their communities, there is a sense of, you know, togetherness that we have in religious groups as well. Uh, and it's it's understandable talking to them. I mean, they are under a persecution complex. Lots of people that they talk to in their workplaces or in the world reject what they have to say. So they, they come together, they stick together with people that understand the way they think. So I, I'm not surprised that you would have elements of a religion appear in these communities.
0: We have got some seriously cool stuff coming up for patrons of this show. You can become a patron for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. But what do you get? Well, you get exclusive access to the Facebook group, only paying members. And let me tell you, that makes for a better group. But the stuff I am interested in telling you about today is some of these upcoming episodes. We've got um, a full-length conversation with Samantha Perez. She is a longtime and super involved member of this community. Especially those in the Facebook group will will recognize her name. We have a, a full-length conversation around what's changed in her life over these past four or five years, including um, transitioning. We've also got a brand new Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony coming up soon. What else? There is a conversation about the psychology of Christian nationalism on the horizon. Another one, uh, some interesting original research by Brandon Flannery on why people are leaving Christianity uh, based on his research. Just a bunch of cool stuff coming. It's a great time to join the Patreon. So if you're interested in that, or if you just want to support this work financially and you don't care about any of those extra episodes, that's fine. I would care about them, but I'm not gonna judge you, and I will still accept your your grateful support. Uh patreon.com/slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month. That link is in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. Let's do a little philosophy here. So, there are some particular logical fallacies that we often find in conspiratorial thinking. Walk us through some of those.
2: Sure. Um, First one would be an ad hominem. So, attacking something about the arguer and not the argument that's irrelevant to the truth of the conclusion. For example... And I I'm, 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 don't have anything in this fight, but Dr. Fauci. So we talk about during the pandemic, he's an agent of the government, so we can't trust what he has to say. That's an ad hominem, right? So just because he's an agent of the public health doesn't mean that he, what he says isn't true or what he says not, is not reliable. So there, there's one example, ad hominem. We want to avoid attacking people. And in these kinds of conversations, and these debates, you see a lot of that.
0: Well, and to to linger there for a second, most conspiracy theories posit a number of evil people at the center of them. And so, <laughs> you know, you identify here's one of the evil people. Here is a member of the Illuminati. Here is a member of the whatever the cabal that's actually secretly running things. And they are all by definition evil. It would seem to matter to someone to figure out who's in that group because it flows from that, they are the people doing the evil things. Right? So right. maybe respond to that sort of reasoning.
2: Well, I think it's problematic, especially for us Christians who are meant who are called to love our neighbors and our enemies, to to lump any group of people into whatever hated group. So even if you could do that, and and maybe you know, if, if we're talking about people who are peddling these theories. We can say That would be reason for us not to engage them in, any further. But when we're talking about our loved ones and our friends who are believing these things, it's. it's I think it's really dangerous as Christians to to go down that road. So, so yes, I, I see that's part of the whole discussion. But part of the book is to to prevent that from happening, so that yeah. we can engage one another in love and sincerity and open mindedness, and not you know write people off as oh that's the conspiracy theorists, or that's them. It's us versus them.
0: And I want to avoid that. I, I do think you're right. The people peddling conspiracy theories, like there's a theologian I won't name who I would probably very much agree with his thought. Um, And I think he, he I don't know if he passed away or he's still alive, but he's also a big conspiracy theorist in one of, in one particular conspiracy theory. And I was like, yeah, I don't trust him. Like, you know, I got plenty of people to interview, to me, that's disqualifying. I will interview somebody else because it tells me something about his intellectual virtue or, or something like that. And, you know, I could be wrong. He could be right about that. That's different. Right. Then I'm talking about how from someone within a conspiracy to identify that, oh, Hillary Clinton is one of the satanic child blood drinkers. Well, that would be really important to know because then that would mean that everything she's saying is false. And if Fauci is also drinking the kid blood, by the way, I'm pulling from some QAnon stuff here for those who are not recognizing what I'm talking about. This is sort of the deepest, the deepest uh, center, the center ring of QAnon, right, is the is the satanic child blood sacrifices. So if Fauci is one of those, well, then it would be important for that person to know that they were because then they would know not. To trust Fauci, right? So there, there's a kind of, and that's like a bastardized version of me not bringing the theologian on, but it's not wholly different. It is about trustworthiness. So how do you know when to apply the ad hominem, you know, critique or whatever?
2: Well, even with Fauci, we could we could grant that he's biased to some extent, and still take his arguments seriously. So just because you're biased doesn't mean you're wrong. Just, just strictly on a logical basis, just because your bias doesn't mean you're wrong. It does mean you need to be a little more cautious Mm -hmm. when you listen to those people. You may not want to invite that person on your show. There might be other reasons for that. But as far as like argumentation goes, we still want to take their argument seriously.
0: Okay. Give me another fallacy.
1: Yeah. So the sort of ad hoc explanation is one, actually, this is from the appendix that Greg wrote about a reasoning guide. But it's, you know, you're trying to save a theory from something. So
0: you give an example in the intro of the the flat earther guy yeah. at the campus. And and, you know, you talk about all the f- video and photographs from space. And then he goes, well, NASA are all liars. So that's a way to kind yeah. of keep the theory intact. So then we don't have to worry about all that evidence because NASA lies.
1: Yeah. and so And so that's right. That's ad hoc because you're not really. You're just He's just asserting NASA lies, right? He hasn't given me reasons to believe they lie, uh, and, you know, to save the appearances. Or, I mean, it, I mean, what comes to mind for me, I remember being in college and reading, you know, when people were talking about, you know, evolution and the fossil record and Christian books would come out, you know, to explain people that were like young earth creationists. And so they'd say, well, yeah, the, the rocks appear to be millions of years old. Maybe they'd call into question carbon dating or God just created, right, the world with really old trees already
0: or the devil planted the fossils. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: that too. That's
0: the best ad hoc right there. It's a test of our faith. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So it's like, okay, but why think that, but I mean, it's a good, it's well, not good. It's a story, right? That saves the theory if you buy it, but then why believe that story? Right. So again, for us, and I think it just goes, it goes back to evidence. Yeah. And look, we, I mean, look, that's, I mean, human beings, we don't, we, we want to know more than sometimes we're capable of knowing, I guess. But yeah, I think yeah. that's, that jumps to mind. So the ad hoc thing is, why didn't Trump win the election? Well, it can't be because more people voted for Biden. There's got to be something going on, right? And so then you try to figure it out and you get videos of ballot dumps that are actually dumping the empty envelopes. I mean, just stuff like that, that- right. Um, Yeah. And you can save what you can save the appearance, save your theory, save your belief. And in this case, as you mentioned, when those things are quarter identity, which for some strange reason, Trump is quarter a lot of people's identity these days um, and Biden to others, you know, both sides, all that stuff to a degree. But but I think that that comes into play there as, as well. Yeah.
0: I don't want to always turn this back on Christianity on the whole, but a lot of this stuff really does resonate with my own, if we want to call it deconstruction, reconstruction journey, for lack of a better term. But the ad hoc thing is, I think, one language that I would use often as I was really looking through, what do I think about the Bible? What do I think about theology? Mental gymnastics is a term that I used a lot, where I would go, okay, I think This guy's kind of bending himself around. And I actually think ad hoc explanation is a pretty good example of that. So take Calvinism and the just fucking abhorrent, follow it logically to it, to it starts with, Oh, everybody is deserving of eternal hell. So then everybody who dies young before they can accept the gospel Like they all just go to hell and you go, well, no, 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 no. There's an age of accountability, which is like, there's not in the Bible. If that's not an ad hoc explanation, I don't know what is, but then you go, oh, okay. So then abortion's good because all those souls will get to spend eternity in heaven. Why even give them a chance to things up here on earth and go to hell why let anybody get to the cage of accountability? And now you're arguing for genocide, essentially. So we just kill children because then they can go to heaven. And and I and I got to a point where I'm like, yeah, this is gymnastics. This is not uh, applying to reality. I have to reject that theological framework because it doesn't work.
2: I get the same kind of feeling when, that that happens a lot in just theological circles. And I'm, when you read apologetics, sometimes you feel like that's what's going on. Maybe, maybe we just need to read Mike's book about humility and and really learn that better. Right. Sometimes we just got to say, I don't know the reason. And we can, we can speculate maybe this, maybe that, maybe the fossils came around you know, whatever, however you want to, but, but make sure it's speculation and not, a, you know, just absolute assert, assertion.
0: And before you speak on that, Mike, It's back to the dissonance. The reason that people go to Age of Accountability is because the idea of innocent children being tortured in hell is not comprehensible by a human brain. It is too dissonant. It's like when people say, if God didn't exist, humans would have invented him. If the Age of Accountability didn't exist, it doesn't exist. And people invented it. They had to because you just the mind can't hold it. And that's really what we're talking about. With conspiracy theories at a, some sort of a experiential psychological level, you get that dissonance. You can't live with that. It's the reason that no one believes other than people with basically severe mental health issues, nobody believes that they are going to hell because you can't hold that thought in your brain. It doesn't, it won't stick, you know? So, it. and then we go, oh, okay. So then I guess this, and, and then those are often ad hoc.
1: I think that this goes back to your question about, well, yeah, what you're talking about, like the credibility, like are we all just, you know, when you start calling those things into question, why do I believe them about anything else when, you know, about Jesus or about the Bible or about these religious beliefs they've taught me since I was young? I mean, I think you see that with a lot of, from my understanding, people that are deconstructing in that, in the sense of like leaving the faith or radically changing it or, or whatever it is, you know, they it's the dissonance of, well, they said this, I mean, I was around when, you know, you couldn't trust Bill Clinton to be president because he's, he can't be a good husband and he's going to lie to his wife. Well, look, this is, I mean, you, we've all heard this a million times now, but then with Trump, right. That's just the clearest yeah. example of hypocrisy uh, and double-mindedness you can come up with. I've always been more skeptical. probably about, but sometimes not. I remember being at a conference. This was a long time ago at a big Christian conference. And the speaker said, um, it presented as a scientific fact that all people who are gay, um, it's because they had a deficit in relationship with their same-sex parent, right? I was like, well, and in my mind yeah. at times, like, surely he wouldn't say that unless he he knew it was true. And then I find out later, oh, no, that's like some, I think it's discredited Jungians. In,
0: I mean, you might know more about this than me, but
1: basically, it just wasn't true.
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know the discrediting, but but my dad fell yeah. for that in the 80s and 90s. and. Maybe early aughts. I don't know. And I, I think he's changed his mind on it. I argued with him vociferously in my 20s about that. And, you know, people have tried to prove it and it. You know, it just doesn't. It, I, I'm not like super expert in that research. But my understanding yeah. is that there is no such evidence for that. It was a theory that then was convenient for a certain group of people to be able to slap, you know, official research on their viewpoint and so yeah so it, it, it was an argument from convenience dressed up as scientific
1: yeah and there's kind of i mean i guess it's if it's not ad hoc it's in the neighborhood so a lot of a lot of christian writers i mean even in apologetics like greg mentioned so like, like well there's this skepticism about science about psychology about you know all the this all this stuff unless it's something that like confirms what i believe then all of a sudden you know i'll quote that. <laughs> the people from that field right yeah. so that's a
0: well we're all true of that i mean or that's yeah. true of all of us we're all guilty of that yeah
1: no not me i'm perfectly <laughs> impartial yeah, you're a philosopher you yeah, probably do, right. do
0: you probably do do better because it is your job to do better yeah you kind of but get, i know that i'm guilty of it yeah
1: yeah no we all are for sure and i think i think the key is cultivating that self-awareness and reflectiveness to at least catch it sometimes um And I think, but I think there's something like that going on here, right? You just, we just want to know, we want explanations. We can't live with the dissonance and this provides one, right? It provides, well, yeah, we're kind of recovering their same ground, but yeah, I think that's part of the function that this plays in people's lives for meaning for even just dealing with fear, anxiety, worry, all that stuff. Right. And and I get it. I'm, I look at the world. I'm not, (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm kind of fearful myself. Right.
0: So let's, let's pivot for the rest of our conversation to practicalities. We all know people, I would, I would guess that every single person listening to this has someone in their life and maybe many people in their life who are full on into conspiracy theories or flirt enough with them. And there's some concern. There's some uh, distance across which it is difficult to communicate. I would guess that in most of those cases, it has, significantly threatened relational closeness with those people. Um, I, I can think of many individuals in my own life. What have you and, and the authors of the various chapters of the book, let, let's let's spend the rest of this time talking through what you guys have uncovered about how to bridge that divide, how to keep relationships going, how to be a resource for those people back towards more complexity and accuracy, uh, etc. Where, where should we start with that? Where's the best place to start?
2: I'm glad you asked this question, because this is, for me, um, the inspiration of the book, having friends, loved ones who believe these things. And this is where it started for me, getting into conversations with people who believe things that I just couldn't believe with them. And as a philosopher asking these deep questions and wanting to think critically about them, I'm just now I'm reading. Now I'm trying to understand. But a friend of mine uh, said once that instead of getting into these conversations with the goal of trying to persuade the other that you're right and they're wrong, you should get into the conversation at, with the goal of trying to strengthen your relationship with them, to convince them that you love them. And, and I've done this. Perhaps you ne- even need to stop. You need to pause because over, wow. over the table, you realize this is going down the wrong road. I know where this is going to go. We've been down mm-hmm. this road 100 times before and just stop and say, you know what, brother, I love you. And I don't think we're going to agree on this at the end of the day. But I want you to know that no matter where we end up, I still care about you. And that just changes the dynamic. It changes the tone. And as Christians, I think that's what we're called to do is to love our neighbors and and love one another primarily above all other things. Um, Even though truth is really important for Christianity, I think love is right up there and maybe even more important for Christians. So I think this is the starting point for any conversation with anybody that you care even the smallest bit about is to make sure they understand that you're invested in that relationship.
0: That is profound actually. I think psychologically profound. The way that I understand that people actually change their minds most people like you guys as philosophers and me as, you know, I, I dally in it, got a bachelor's. I interview people about arguments and I and I try to be open to evidence. Um, most people do not change their mind through any version of that. And even probably many philosophers don't change their mind through evidence. Like, as I understand it, the the evidence is strong that we change, we change our minds when people that we look up to people that we feel close with people that we have warmth toward when, when those people change their minds or enough of them have changed their minds. Like if you think about something like White and black people getting married. Right. And the miscegenation laws and all that stuff. Like, is it is it that a bunch of Americans, you know, perused the arguments for and against and at some point there was a critical mass of evidence against and so so we shifted our minds? No. It's a, it was a social thing that changed over time. Media is a part of it. Your neighbor changing his mind is a part of it. At some point, you get to a critical mass where it's no longer acceptable to believe that white and black people shouldn't be in relationships with each other. And then you get the last 30 percent holdouts or, or whatever. And then you've just got your weird grandpa and we're down to five percent of people who believe it. And they're all over 70. You know, so it's like that's the way that opinions actually change, generally speaking. And so I love that. Like, just if you realize it's going there, pause and and say this conversation should be about you knowing that I love you, because if you know that I love you, that is actually the best chance that you would take seriously what I believe. And if you think I don't love you, then you're going to be like, well, that guy, I, I guess I don't need to worry about that. And in fact, you just given them a reason to stay because they will find that love and acceptance and social support with their co-conspiracy theorists, essentially their community. That's where they'll get it. And that's a fundamental human need. They're going to get it one way or the other, because without it, they'll die or, you know, just wither. So you give them that and let it work out more slowly what they believe in, how they vote, et cetera, et cetera.
2: When I talk to non-conspiracy theorists in the church I, I'm just struck by how, like I mentioned this before, how many of them just are, are dismissal of the other camp. And I just that breaks my heart. Um, I think that's wrong. I think it's disrespectful. I know I, I get the temptation, um, but I think we need to engage one another. I think that's what loving somebody is, is to take them seriously, take their view seriously. And, and like you said, they, they know when they're when they're being listened to and when they're not, when, when you're just trying to get through the conversation
1: so you can move on to something else. I mean, I think anything else we say in the practical, you know, in the rest of the conversation would just be important, but kind of fall under that, right? I mean, you want that to guide how you interact. But look, it's not easy. I mean, I'm as a philosopher, yeah, I know that I'm not always rational, but I also know I get really irritated when people are irra where it seems just blatantly irrational to me, and so that's yeah. a check, right? And then, and then there's the humility of like just setting that aside and caring about the person and. Dallas Willard, a lot of his stuff's really influential for me, just his picture of the Christian life and all that. And I actually started started doing this in my classes, talking about this the first day. So I teach a lot of ethics classes. And so it's, you know, controversial stuff, ethical theories, but, but it fits here too. Like Willard, he, you know, he would get invited to debate people about Christianity or whatever. And he says, I don't want to debate, but if you want to come, I'm happy to have a discussion with somebody, right? So you can get him and whoever on the stage to discuss something he's up for. it. He's not, you know, he didn't want to be William Lynn Craig in debate, right? And maybe there's, I don't, I'm pretty skeptical of the value of those kind of things these yeah, days, maybe same. in the past it, it had more, but Willard said something about this word picture, rather than seeing ourselves as like face-to-face, really as opponents arguing our views, right? Which is kind of what contemporary analytic philosophy still is pretty much like, rather like shoulder to shoulder, looking out together, trying to figure out what's true together, right? So that that's a priority of relationship. But it's also we want the same thing ostensibly, at least we want to know what's true and try to order our lives to it, right? To live good lives, happy lives, wise lives. And if we can shoulder to shoulder help each other do that, right, that's a different way. If I'm looking at the conspiracy theorist saying I want to help you and when I'm wrong, I want you to help me. That's different than as Craig's talking about. Well, here are the three things that you're. Well, I think you're an idiot. I'm dismiss you. So it's more just the posture and the sort of attitude behind it. I think it's a kind of a good word picture for how to approach these things. Because if you're, yeah, the, the temptation on the other side of people like me who tend to be skeptical of these kind of theories is to be dismissive. It's just, oh, I'm not going to talk. Boy, I, I'm just going to avoid that guy. I don't want to talk to him about this. And there may be a time and place to avoid people because some people just want to talk incessantly about the same thing over and over and uh, nobody wants to do that. But if, you know, but you want to engage people who are willing to do so in, in, in that kind of good faith.
0: When I have tried, and this is since the depolarized days, so the last seven years or so, when I have tried to engage across the political divide with people in my life, I have sometimes succeeded. I have sometimes failed and surely dug them in further. What I've always realized is it takes a lot of mental and emotional effort. It's basically like being on my best behavior. Um, it's it's almost like doing therapy. Like when I am in the room with a client for 50 minutes and I am, I am on my best behavior, I'm focusing as much as I can. I am thinking about three or four different threads. What's going on with them emotionally? What's going on with the, the words that they're saying? What's the body language? Uh, how does this fit into our larger treatment planning? You know, I'm I'm using my whole brain as well as the the deepest parts of my empathy, right? That I can muster in that moment. And that is basically what it takes. And so to me, who sees clients during the week and interviews people like you during the week, it feels like fucking work. And it's usually not what I want to be doing when I am with these people. It's often the weekend, right? And so it's like, sometimes I'm just not up for it. It feels like a bad return on investment of energy. I think that that's probably selfish. It might in some cases be categorized as self care and good, But I like this idea that, you know what, if you don't have like if I don't have a 70 percent or higher internal battery at the moment that the conversation starts, I actually like I can just pivot to, you know what, I think we probably disagree about that stuff. And then either what you said, Greg, like emphasize our friendship or just ask them about their life, like just be a friend, just be a loved one and lean into the fact that we have a relationship and that's not a cop out is what's really kind of landing for me. That is not a cop out. That is actually a better strategy in, in more cases than not probably because you know, it's complex. It's all a web. They've got all these sources of information and whatever. You're only one point in that big web of theirs. And if you can be loving, that's probably the best thing you can do And then they might look at your tweets or your things that you recommend without even telling you they're going to, or they heard you mention a book and they'll pick it up or a a columnist you like or something. They're not even going to tell you that they did that, but they won't do it unless they feel accepted and cared for by you and feel some sort of relational closeness. Otherwise, you're not a good source of information.
2: Yeah, that's great. I was going to say also taking your own emotional temperature before you go into those Conversations, just your own psychological well-being, as you mentioned. If you're not up for that conversation, change the topic. If you have a friendship, mentioning that, you know what? For the sake of my sanity, right now, or my friend, our friendship, can we just talk about something else? And if they're your friend, sure, they should they should do that.
0: So that's the overall umbrella kind of strategy. Is it's relationship over argument? You know, to to throw the the psycho babble in It's it's unconditional positive regard. It's just showing them that you care about them and not you know, kind of holding that over them. Are there any like more specific kind of more granular strategies? Like, you know, we talked about admitting to smaller conspiracies, like sort of expressing a more gray scale view of the world, as opposed to black and white, kind of inviting them through example into a a more discernment based thing. That's not rejecting everything they believe whole cloth
2: if you're open to evidence and it's clear to them that you're open to evidence that goes a long way even to the first topic right it goes a, a long way to that so starting out with as mike was talking about humility is if they can clearly tell that you're humble and you're open to what they have to say you're going to go you're going to go far now i would also say one question that i put in my chapter was you know ask them what it would take for them to change their mind once you've gotten through all that initial stuff so say what kind of evidence would you, would you be open to? And that often for all of us, that changes our, the way of thinking as we get into debates, right? We start thinking about, okay, so am I totally an absolutist about this? Or could there be a scenario where the evidence goes the other way? And what would that look like? We can entertain that hypothetically. And then I think that's, that's, that's helpful for having a good, honest conversation.
0: That's a scary thought. Because, and even, you know, I supposedly pride myself on being open to evidence and I've changed my mind on a bunch of things and that's why I do this in part, but it's scary to think, well, what would change my mind away from theism, for instance, or like I'm currently not convinced by multiverse alternatives to the fine tuning of the universe. I don't find them persuasive. What would I find persuasive? And what if somebody comes up with that in 30 years, you know, even, I don't know, it it feels like walking the plank a little bit off of a pirate ship. Like it's, 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 it's uncertain. It's, it's unsteady. And yet I know that that would be the most uh, integrity filled thing that I could do, at least as a thinker to, to the extent that that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm being a thinker. I'm talking about arguments and, and evidence with people in a public way. I just recognize, I recognize that internal resistance to it. And then I got to think, well, they're going to have that resistance too. I have that resistance. That resistance must be profoundly human. And then can that, can I have empathy for that resistance? Can I identify, can I admit to it, to them the way that I have it, you know, the, these kind of ways of, of modeling with, uh, again, that positive regard.
2: I think this speaks to the psych psychologist in the room, but also recognizing that there are feelings involved. So asking yourself know about your own emotional temperature but also asking the other person if you get the chance why are you feeling angry right now why why do i notice that when we get on this topic you get all animated right can you tell me more about that like are you afraid of something happening like that kind of thing but that's i think an important part to address especially if you're friends with the person
1: yeah and that emotional contagion or the idea right this goes to how we approach others too is that if like we tend to think i can think this guy i mean just Whatever. I can just think this guy's an idiot, but I'm going to be nice to him and talk to him. Well, we think we can sort of wall that off, but this is from one of the chapters in the book on commun- from a communications professor. Just as a side note, but we that stuff bleeds through, right? Yeah, and that's important, right? And, but and so what you know, taking what Greg said at the at the beginning of this practical part, the others, the positive stuff bleeds through too. Like if I really, you know, if I really do love this person, care about this person, those positive emotions will bleed through, and hopefully, as we start if we do get into the sort of more granular stuff about, you know, I read something that they suggest and then I ask them to read something, we have a conversation about just the ideas, right? That stuff's sort of providing the, yeah, the, I don't know, the bumpers or just the right protective sort of space for that stuff to happen. Yeah. I mean, they're really practical stuff, just that. Restating here's what, I, you know, here's what I heard you say, right. When somebody, you know, he talks about, a the contributor talks about a coworker who was concerned that he was going to get, I don't know if it was the COVID vaccine or just flu, but vaccines, right? And so it'd be easy to say, well, you know, be dismissive. But I mean, talks about restating what you heard the person say, tell them what resonated with you at a heart level. And then the empathy thing, look, if I was in your shoes and I really believe this stuff was like, people were putting poison in their bodies, I'd want to tell my friends too, right? Like it's because you care about me that you're telling me, right? And so I think those things help. Finding areas of agreement when and where you can, right? That's a key point. Because it's just all that stuff diffuses the antagonism and the pride. And, you know, this is something I've learned by trial and error. I never talked about, almost never talked about politics, like on social media and stuff and, until Trump, because I just couldn't believe what was happening. You know, that sort of, especially in this, you know, I became an evangelical without knowing it when I was a senior in high school, growing up Roman Catholic. And then just seeing what was, I'm just like, how I didn't get it. right? I just couldn't make sense of it. And so for a while, I was just kind of hammering people with arguments. And I think there's a place for that. But I've learned over time, even in social media, when you just start approaching it this way, the quality of the interaction changes, right? Because when you don't hit back, right, and then you ask a question or you – it just opens up ways for deeper, more meaningful communication and for relationship, for love, as as you've talked about. But then you kind of gain the capital. I hate to use that term, but – you you give yourself some space. Now, here's here's one thing I'd like to add to the conversation. So maybe you give an objection, or you, you give a concern or you say, you know, if Q is reliable, how do you what do you make of like these predictions that haven't come true? I mean, you can do the, have those kind of conversations. But if those things are like downstream of all the other stuff we've talked about, you know, then they're going to be more fruitful. I've
0: got kind of just one more angle uh, and connection to make something that I'm actually really learning right now that I think is relevant here. I'd love to hear you guys respond to it before we wrap up. So, you know, I'm a practicing therapist and, and the moment I'm, I'm working at basically a nonprofit clinic. So a lot of lower SES folks, quite a bit of acuity in a lot of our clients, a lot of very tough overlapping problems. Right. And I brought that to my supervisor who is uh, just a wonderful man and a wonderful clinician. And one thing that he's helping me do is take a long view, right? So as a therapist, I've got someone in my office, you know, I'm at this clinic for 10 months. I will see someone for a maximum of 10 months, but a lot of clients more like three to five, six months, whatever. And then they're going to go live a 75 year life, right? So I've only got this little window with them. And in addition to that, I don't always know what to do. And especially the more overlapping problems people have, the more complex their case is, the more you can feel like you're spinning your wheels, like you're throwing darts at a wall. And one week he said, sometimes all we're doing is keeping people alive. And that's a great thing to do. And I was like, holy shit, you know, like, yeah. And if I zoom out, I may have, and I'll never know which ones, right, of course, but I will end up having clients that like, we didn't really get anything done, but they did not kill themselves. And then all kinds of other things happened in their life that I have no control over, much of which they have no control over. And the humility there of, okay, Dan, you know, you think you're a pretty good clinician. You think you're a pretty good therapist working with these people. You've got them for a very short season you can only do what they let you do. You can only do what you know about. You can love them. You can give them this regard. You can do your best work one hour a week and a little bit of prep in between, you know, sessions. And and you have to leave the rest of it up to God, to the universe, to whatever, however you phrase that. My supervisor uh, my supervisor's Catholic. And so he, for him, it's God. and. Yeah. Like I just, I do think that that long view applies here. It's a, it's a little different, right? Cause these people are not our clients and we are not service providers one hour a week or so, but we don't have a lot of control over what happens to them. We don't have all that much influence in someone else's life and we are playing a long game, whether or not we admit it to ourselves, uh, especially if these are people who will be in our lives for years and years, You know, it's hard for us to think 10 years down the road, but if you've been good friends with someone for 10 years, you will probably be friends with them 10 years from now. And how will they feel? How will you act toward them? How will they think of you 10 years from now? It's a long process. And maybe all you can do is be loving. And that's just a little like this is where the language of you plant the seed. God makes it grow. God waters it or whatever that kind of which I kind of roll my eyes out, but is like 100 percent accurate. That is an incredible analogy, that agrarian analogy of planting a seed. And then all kinds of things happen in the world. And you had a little part, you know, maybe you're the person who waters it a little bit. That's true, actually, as much, as cringy as it is at an aesthetic level for some of us.
1: No, I think that's right. And I think we want, you know, we want quick results or we want, here, I gave you the argument and i just change your mind. But it just doesn't work that way. And it didn't, I mean, if we think about ourselves, like you said, I mean, as philosophers, we like to think, well, we're not that much, I mean, I don't know. I interact with them. They're not, we're not that much different than everybody else, right? We just might use stilted prose. And yeah, we understand arguments and when I start thinking about why I hold the views I do I can give evidence and reasons but I also can just say well when I first heard that view it just sounded good I just liked it right and so then I you know kind of did some research but but yeah I think that's right it is long game kind of stuff and it, and that's because it's relational right and so you're you do want after 10 years you want that person no matter what they believe about this or other politics or other difficult maybe disagreements you have right that happens within that at that deeper level, there's a there's community there. And so that's, that's one reason to make that the priority because it it should be actually.
2: Yeah, I think it's, that's well said, Mike, I think it's about relationship. And uh, Dan, I think I'm going to try to apply that to my classroom now. I think the long game, because you get frustrated with your students too. So well, just like with your clients, but if you if you just look at it as I've got them for this short time, I'm just going to do my best. Maybe I'll be less frustrated sometimes.
0: And there are interesting sort of ethical reasons why we really only have them for that time. And as a a teacher, you know, you have a chance to offer more kind of mentorship and stuff like that. That's actually probably closer to the model of, of, you know, friends who are down conspiracy theory rabbit holes, right? Because once someone's not my client anymore, like they're not my client and, 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 they shouldn't need to care what I think, and they don't owe me anything. You know, there's all these kind of reasons to to keep it separate for their for their sake. And what you guys do with your students is is closer to to what we're talking about. But yeah, there is still something there. There's the long game. There's a limited time we have with people, and there's the fact that they're influenced by a hundred other things as much as they're influenced by us. And you know, we can be as human beings a little bit egomaniacal and sort of egocentric, and we we can think that we have more control than we do, uh, over a lot of the things in our own lives as well, especially other people's lives. So yeah, I, I always, always find that a helpful lens. It's good. Well, you guys great conversation. Thank you so much. Again, the book is called QAnon chaos and the cross, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Any other links that you'd like Josh to put in there?
1: I have michaelwoston.com, get a website, and then that's my handle on Twitter. So if people actually want to engage. That's probably a good first place.
0: You heard it. He, he, he said yes. He gave you permission yeah, already. That's right. So, so go but for I, it. <laughs> yeah.
1: I meticulously am lazy about checking it these days, trying to weed it out, but I'm still on, on there. So
0: yeah, same.
2: We both got other books on Amazon, edited and authored. So. Other than that, I'm not really on social media these days. But
0: Lord love you, Greg. I'm sure it's better. I'm sure you're healthier for that. I'll get there. All right, guys. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks
0: for having us.